Thank you for listening to this Lunchtime Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Assistant Curator of Asian Art, Russell Kelty, reveals the Japanese influences on Impressionism in Colours of Impressionism, masterpieces from the Musée d'Orsay. The beginning of our story starts with Utagawa Hiroshige, who was born in 1797 in Edo, what we now call Tokyo. He was born to a lower samurai uh, father and, kind of, and obviously his mother. And around the age of nine or 10, both his mother and his father passed away. Now I think about 1797, so maybe he was around 12 years old. I can't imagine my father and mother passing away at 12 years of old and me having any kind of ability to decide what I wanted to do with my life. But he was lucky. His father was kind of this, um, he was part of the organization that ran uh, firemen uh, in Edo. And actually this is quite an important job because you have to remember Edo at that time was the most populated city in the world, about a million inhabitants, much bigger than Paris. Paris was about 660,000. And every single building, except for castles, was made of wood. So it was like a tinderbox waiting to, you know, waiting to uh, go into con to a conflagration. It was just waiting to happen. So it was constantly lighting a fire. And so you had to have these, these dedicated firemen wandering around the city and organizers who could put out these spot fires. And so he took on this position from his father. And so he lived at the barracks right outside of Edo Castle, where the, the head of the government had moved, the military government. And while he didn't make a great deal of money, the position actually afforded him a fairly leisurely lifestyle. And so he decided that he would actually start to take up art. And so he trained with some well-known painters. He trained, and then he started training with printmakers. And he was captivated by the print process. And the print process is intriguing because what you see, you know, this is quite different. This is quite a stark difference between oil painting and printmaking. Oil painting, as Tonia has told me so many times, this fantastic painting by Monet of the landscape with the snow and the beautiful magpie sitting on the fence, which is incorrect if you look at the shadow. Thanks, Tony. Um, you know, oil painting is a laborious process that can take days. Oil paint doesn't dry for like 50 years. Printmaking is a very quick process done by many hands. So to actually create a print, you have to have somebody make the paper. You have to have a designer. Hiroshige was a designer. You have to have somebody cut the blocks. You have to have somebody print it. Now this was a quicker, pro a quicker process in many ways. Hiroshige actually created about 8,000 designs in his life, so he's amazingly prolific when you think of you know, uh, different oil painters in Europe. And it was a, com uh, you know, a process that combined many different trades together to create an output. So he was fascinated by this, and this whole process which developed in the 1760s, uh, no and they were known as brocade prints, because they were so beautiful. Uh, they were su such lavish colors. And so you have these amazing blocks of print with these contour lines, uh, usually created about seven to eight blocks on one printing. Now it's said that uh, you know, artists of his ilk, artists of his stature, uh, such as Hokusai, Hiroshige, Kunisada, Kuniyoshi, who were all kind of grew up during this time, you know, they created anything from 10 to 30,000 representations of their prints. And they created these prints for a huge population of urbanites. Much like in France, you had this very kind of urbane culture who you know, walked around the city in luxurious clothing, wanted to be seen, wanted to be seen reading the best things, wanted to be seen buying the best prints, buying the best books. And so it was this great kind of urbanite community he was creating works of art for. And of course, as any community, 
they often want to look at themselves and what they're seeing. And so his pictures of, of Edo, of the people in Edo, the actors, the, the sumo wrestlers and so forth, really, you know, uh, you know were meant for this, this crowd. And a really important moment happened in his life, uh, in Hiroshige's life around the 1830s. He was married at the time, he hadn't had any children, but he, he was asked to go on procession from Tokyo to Kyoto. And one thing you have to remember about Edo was, it was difficult to travel, but during Hiroshige's time, there was a great travel boom. It said there was about 2,000 different travel books actually written of the famous places in Japan that you could go visit, if you could get a permit to cross through all these gates and boundaries. And the road that he traveled is not that dissimilar to the road that you travel on the Shinkansen today from Tokyo to Kyoto. And he said this, this changed his life. Going out into the provinces, so to speak, getting out of this urban environment, seeing the wonders of the wild natural world, changed his way of viewing. And it's from this point that we have the birth of probably the second most well-known landscape artist in Japan, second only to Hokusai and his great wave and Mount Fuji, who would eventually take the mantle of Hokusai after his death in the 1850s. And we begin with this fantastic print, Snow at Akabane in Shiba. Uh, this is from a series of prints of, about the eastern capital. And we see immediately this very similar ascetic happening. Now, this isn't just by chance. Obviously, the Musée d'Orsay worked with Tony and myself to pick these prints out to go in this room, obviously to represent snow. And I just want to point out a couple of very interesting aspects of these which relate to these paintings by Sisley and Monet. One, they're absolutely uh, the idea of the natural environment of snow is the focal point of this picture. Now, if you think about art history and European art history, you know, when were the natural events of the world actually that important? It didn't happen until the Impressionists actually started painting them. Before this, you have natural history, myth, uh, grand kind of narratives were the important paintings. That's what the elite wanted. But this is for somebody different. This is for the common man, the common person. This is kind of like prosaic material. This is going out into the world and seeing the day and seeing the snowfall. So the natural world became this thing of wonder and this thing of real importance, which both the Impressionists and Hiroshige uh, kind of evoked in their prints and paintings. The second is perspective. You see this amazing kind of a diagonal uh, of these barracks or these kuras on the right-hand side. And this is another aspect of his print process, which is just the Europeans found absolutely captivating. These very harsh, kind of truncated, diagonals that would move across and create this dynamic in the picture plane that they hadn't seen before and they were captivated by it. And the other is these very small people in the landscape. And so this idea of nature, kind of uh, this grand sense of nature with these diminutive people kind of cowering their way through it, you can actually see in these three paintings by Sisley. You can see these small people, these small characters in this grand na natural environment walking down these paths, almost secondary to the, the kind of beauty of nature and the beauty of that snow. And I think if you look at the one in the middle, you can see this idea of one point perspective kind of played out very clearly uh, when you compare these two, uh, these two drawings. Now you have to remember that the idea of realism or verisimilitude or depicting the world as it is 
is not necessarily a well-ingrained Japanese idea. If you think back or kind of think in your memory of Japanese art, what is Japanese art? You'll probably think floating clouds interspersed with bits of narrative, kind of flat. And so this idea of presenting nature in a realistic way, presenting the world you know, with this one-point perspective, a European idea which arrived in Japan in about the 1600s, is very interesting. And Hiroshige really, you know, he took this on board. He took ideas of one-point perspective of what's known as shase, or pictures from real life. The two characters, Chinese characters, shase, actually are life and picture. And so it's this idea of taking a picture of real life, of real life drawing. And we think immediately, that's a very interesting idea when you look at the Impressionists, who as well were not always working in their studio, but instead went out into the world, you know, got cold in the snow, looked at these you know, birds and the changing of the day and the changing of the light. And so there's a very interesting comparison that's happening here with these two artists. They're seeing the, way, the world in a similar way and yet invoking it in a very different way. And so we start our, begin, our journey with this very famous set of, of, of uh, a 10 prints by Hiroshige, which essentially started him off on his journey. Now, in the 1840s and 1850s, he started to become this very well-known artist. He didn't actually get paid very much. He got paid, uh, you know, about twice the, the amount of a day laborer because there were a lot of, you know, people working in this process, and his publisher probably took on a lot of his, his money. But he started going out into the world and making trips out into nature, so much so that his second wife actually had to sell her clothes and her hair accoutrements so that he could make these journeys out into nature. You know, who hasn't, who hasn't had a ne'er-do-well boyfriend that took all their money and left them for broke and then went out on, you know, partying out in nature? Well, Hiroshige was one of these. He was actually drawn to nature. And so this, this obsession with going out into the real world is very fascinating, and I find it interesting with the Impressionists. The second print that I'll just take a look at is, is this Mount Haruna in snow. And the reason that I look at this is, is again, it's a series of, of landscape prints, but we get something very different with this. This is, you know, this is layer upon layer upon layer of flat surfaces, almost blocking your view in its compositional motifs. And this is really, you know, when I think about Japanese paintings before this period, I really think of this flatness, non-perspective, you know, that comes from a Chinese brush and ink mentality where, you know, layers of scenery are kind of stacked on top of each other. And I look back at uh, Monet's wall, and I immediately see that, you know, he's trying to, he blocks your view and then he opens it up afterwards. So you have these very, this idea of push and pull in the composition, which is giving it this sense of dynamism again, this idea of dynamism. And I kind of look at this, paint, this print in the same way. You have these blocks of color, this great mass of snow, and then these, these areas where your eye can go into it a bit. And so it's this idea of, of uh, of uh, landscape is changing. He's integrating different ideas. And you have to remember, as I was saying before, the Edo period was, you know, the really, the blossoming of Japanese culture, Japanese lacquer, Japanese prints, everything that you would associate Japanese painting with Japanese culture, probably in your mind's eye, you're thinking of something that was created during this period from about 1600 to 1868, uh, when they opened up to the West. And so, you know, the, there was an insatiable appetite for these things. He probably would have created, of this print, maybe two to 3,000 prints, which would have been bought for the price of a, a small set of noodles and kind of coveted by people all around Japan. 
So they, were, they were, weren't meant for the elite. They were meant for the everyday, for the common person, if you will. Now the last, I brought out this last um, print uh, because one, this is the series that everybody knows of Hiroshige, the 100 views of Edo. And the other reason I wanted to bring it out was because it shows, again, that idea of being absolutely ensconced in nature. If you look at it, you can see this great sheath of rain coming down. But it also um, presents this great diagonal composition that you, you see so much in the Impressionists and the association with rivers. If you walk through this, this, this Impressionist show and you look at any picture that actually depicts a river, it's unbelievable how many, you know, the percentage, I haven't counted it, but it's unreal how many, the, the kind of presence of rivers. And so the presence of rivers, obviously, in Edo, the Sumida being the most famous, is, you know, rivers were not only beautiful, they, you could traverse them, you could send cargo down them. But, you know, there's a very interesting, in, in uh, Paris in the 17th century, there were also, you know, a great, obviously, the Seine, you have the Seine, and you had this very interesting event on the Seine is when uh, bathers, public baths, and obviously Japan has many public baths, but in Paris there was a great kind of kerfuffle over public baths on the Seine because they would have these floating baths out in the Seine River. And they were separated by men and women, and men often, as it goes, preferred to, to bathe naked and then would often swim around to the women's side to get a bit of a peek inside. So this idea of urban elite, you know, urbans, bathing, and Japan, this, this very interesting connection. Also this idea of voyeurism and rivers. Rivers running throughout cities, rivers being depicted. Water is a kind of essential quality, again, of those prints, and you see it throughout the Impressionism, Impressionist show. The other reason I wanted to bring this out, um, not only because of rivers, but because this is really his last hurrah, Hiroshige's last hurrah. The, the set is started in the 1850s, it's completed in 1856, roughly, and he dies in 1858. Um, when, before his death, about a year before his death, he actually um, gave up printing altogether, uh, became a Zen monk, and kind of retired from life. And, you know, his, this idea of the Western journey, going to the West, kind of preoccupied him for, for the rest of his days. His last poem actually inscribed on his, uh, his epitaph on his gravestone says, I lay my brush down in the east to set out on great journeys uh, to the great and famous places of the West. Now, this is very interesting because the West, you know, Europe is the West. The West also connotes Nagasaki, where the Dutch were based and the only European presence in Japan, uh, where a lot of knowledge, particularly one-point perspective and things like that came. People were kind of flocking to Nagasaki in the 18th, 19th century. Um, it's also interesting because the West is where the Amida Buddha is supposed to come. You're supposed to watch, lean on your right hand shoulder, look to the West as the Amida Buddha comes to gre greet you and take you to his paradise. So all of these ideas of the West and the ideas of death and his kind of great journeys are all bound up in this last statement that uh, is an epitaph on his grave. So when you look at these prints, um, which I thought was a brilliant idea by the Musée d'Orsay and by Tony, and I think we, we pulled an interesting selection together out of the galleries, 300 some odd prints, and you look, you go out into the wider world of this, this exhibition, just remember that there are many different attributes 
of prints, of Japanese print culture, particularly in the 1850s, 1840s, that influenced Impressionism. And so when did, Impression, when did the Impressionists start to see these prints? Well, it started in the 1850s or so, when Japan was first starting to open up, and these prints were, were kind of coming out from Nagasaki, probably with the Dutch, possibly with some other Europeans. Um, and they made their way slowly into France. And it's said that the first man to really grasp onto them was a man known as Felix Bracamont, who took Hokusai's manga, which is this book of all these fish and different creatures from the natural world, and started to actually um, paint them on ceramics. You can actually see them today, you can still buy them. These fantastic fish and flora and fauna all painted on these ceramics. And it's said that this is where the French first started to see them. But Monet, in particular, in the 1870 and 1871, went kind of on leave during the Franco-Prussian War. He moved to England and then to Amsterdam for a little while. And it's said that he was in a shop, a merchant shop in Amsterdam, kind of uh, trying to get down a, a merchant on this Chinese vessel. He was, he was haggling with him. And all of a sudden, he saw in the, in the vessel kind of curled up these, these pieces of paper. And he kind of pulled them out, and he opened them up, and he realized what they were, that they were these prints. He didn't know exactly where they came from, but he just thought they were fantastic. And so when they finally came to a, a price with the merchant, he said, oh, do you want me to pay for these prints as well? And the merchant said, no, no, take them with you. And we know that Monet in particular, along with all the uh, Impressionists, had a great fascination with Japanese prints. Um, you know, his bridge scenes and gardens and so forth, you can draw those a direct connection with, with Japanese prints, particularly of the bridge in Edo. And by the time he, he died, he had a print collection of two to three hundred prints. There are photographs of him in his dining room, actually, with prints kind of covering the walls like wallpaper. So he had a great fascination for them. And he considered them, you know, these amazing artists, not because they were foreign or exotic, although the appeal of, of seeing kind of people with straw hats running around these uh, snowy landscapes half-clothed was probably not lost on him. But he recognized them as artists, as kindred souls, looking at the natural world, seeing the natural world in a very particular way. And he took that on, and the Impressionists took that on. So I think when you see this, you can see it as an encounter, but you can also see it as a sense of camaraderie between artists, you know, spanning some god, who knows how many kilometers, but a similar kind of aesthetic and a similar idea. The real reason why I brought this print in, which I actually forgot, the one on the left, one of the, the last of his series, is because if you look at Van Gogh, who often is considered a post-Impressionist, after the Impressionists, um, he actually made a direct copy of this. So if you look at Van Gogh's output, you can see that he made a direct copy of this. So it wasn't only the Impressionists who were infatuated with the Japanese, but um, also the post-Impressionists. And the idea of Japanese may, Mikado mania, kind of perpetuates the early 20th century uh, to such an extent that you know there are expositions throughout Paris, Boston, Chicago, at Melbourne, Sydney in the 1880s, 1870s, which absolutely people went totally nuts over. Um, Japanese craftsmen were at the height of their powers, and they were really creating things that, on a technical level and a scale, that probably will never be created again because of mechanization. So this, this, this story of Hiroshige and the kind of connection with Impressionism it's interesting to me as a, as a person who loves Asian art because Japan was essentially a bubble for 250 years. And out of this bubble came these amazingly creative prints and practices that had such a profound effect on our world. 
And you know, nobody knows, no, nobody knows, you know, there's no art form known more throughout the world or more appreciated than Impressionism. And to some extent, the Japanese had a, had a large role in formulating those compositions, what they were looking at, how they were looking at it, and how they were representing this natural world. So when you walk through the rest of the gallery, remember to look for diagonals, rivers, and the preponderance of a natural environment kind of subsuming humanity, if you will. And I wish you well on your journey to the north. <laughs> Thank you very much.